Our text for this morning's sermon is 1 Samuel chapter 13. So I invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel. I understand you here in Owen Sound have earlier looked at 1 Samuel too, but I think you've only got to chapter 8, your pastor tells me. In Fergus North, I was going through this, we were going through the same thing, except for we got to chapter 13. And also, these are good sermons to consider also at this time of the year, Christmas time as well. The king that God provides, that he is, the king that God provides is unlike Israel's first king, King Saul. And you see that especially here too in this chapter of 1 Samuel 13. So 1 Samuel 13, this will be our scripture reading and our text. Hear the word of the Lord. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines, and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the, est, to the east of Beth-Aben. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Then he waited seven days, according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened. As soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him, that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal. And I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. 
Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road towards Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned to the road to Beth Horon. And another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears, that all the, all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for a sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Let's sing after the sermon from hymn 15, 1, 2, and 3, all the stanzas of hymn 15. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the writing is on the wall. You perhaps heard that expression. Do you know what, what that expression means? Do you know where it comes from? It means things are over. No matter how it looks, things are done. It's an English saying that comes from the Bible. Maybe you know, in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar's feast, where writing mysteriously appeared on the wall. The king of Babylon was having a big party. He was also partying with the temple vessels. Somehow, a whole hand appeared and wrote words on the palace wall. The king turned white and peed his pants. Mene, mene, teko, uparsin were the words. Daniel was called in to explain the meaning of them. And he says, numbered, numbered, weighed, and found wanting. Your kingdom, Belshazzar, will be taken from you. Well, that is the sort of thing that we also have here in 1 Samuel 13. King Saul, the king of Israel, is numbered and weighed, found wanting. Maybe the rest of Israel did not hear about this incident and the exchange between Saul and Samuel, but we are told it as we're going through 1 Samuel. So right away then, at the beginning of the reign of Saul, we're introduced to this scene where Saul is impatient and offers the sacrifice himself. Sure, you know, at first things seemed very promising with Saul. I mean, he was tall. He has a divine anger. He wins a great battle against King Nahash of the Ammonites, the snake. That's what Nahash means. 
But right away we're also told, do not get your hopes up because Saul is fatally flawed. It really is over for Saul even when it's just begun. Why is it over for King Saul? Well, Saul, it's just like at the end of the book of Judges. You know that refrain that you hear at the end of the book of Judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I mean, doesn't that sound like a good thing? Doing what is right. It's not everyone just went out and did whatever evil they wanted. But when the standard of doing what is right is yourself, the writing is on the wall. Political leaders sometimes like to boast about doing the right thing. I mean, I remember a former premier of Ontario saying this was his philosophy of governing, that he wanted to be able to look at himself each morning in the mirror and say, you're doing a good job. But that is not a high enough standard. And when we think about leadership or a king, salvation, we need to have much higher standards. Maybe you can inspect a weld by sight to make sure it's a good one. But you certainly do not eyeball something that you've had to machine to a thousandth of an inch. Perhaps you know how it goes in 1 and 2 Kings. The events of each king's life in Israel are related. And then there's an evaluation also of the king. And what's the standard? Do you read things like, and King Asa lowered unemployment to the lowest level in 40 years, or King Ahaz won 18 battles against the enemies of Israel? That's not at all what you read, of course. You read, it's, and Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Or Joash did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We need to learn to be critical. We need to learn to be led to the man of God's choosing. The king who is passionate about the will of God. And that king in the Old Testament will first of all be David. I know when we think of David, we often think of that big scene, his terrible sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And absolutely, David was a sinner, and in a way, it is a beautiful thing that we have people like David in Scripture to encourage us as well that no one is beyond the grace of God. But if you read the Bible, you will also find out that David is praised. David is held out as, a, as an example. Rehoboam is told, if you listen to my commands and do what is right in my eyes, as David did, it will go well with you. Or later on, you were not like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which is right in my eyes. This is 1 Kings 14.8. Or chapter later, 
David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything he commanded all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. That's 1 Kings 15, 5. So it's very clear in the Word of God. The king over God's people whom the people will look to for victory and deliverance needs to know the will of God or else the writing is on the wall. I put the sermon under that theme. We need a leader who loves God's law. And we'll look at three things, the test, the fail, and the fulfillment. So first of all, in chapter 13, we have a scene here that sets the stage for Saul's test. Again here, you read a lot about the Philistine. Earlier, there was a focus on the Ammonites who were more than to the east. Now the focus is on the west to the Philistines. The Philistines, you need to know, they are a terrible enemy. They, well, certainly in this passage here, they have great numbers, although I'll mention that in just a second too. We'll discuss that. But they also have superior technology. It seems in archaeology, proves this as well. The Philistines entered the Iron Age ahead of the Israelites. The Israelites are still sort of in the Bronze Age. But yet, you can read at the very beginning too, though, that Jonathan, Saul's son, defeats the Philistine garrison at Geba. It's possible to translate this also that he killed the Philistine governor. Saul himself blows a trumpet and wants all of Israel to be encouraged to take notice. Let the Hebrews hear, he shouts. We can be victorious over these Philistines. But what Saul says is also a little bit ominous. Let the Hebrews hear. Saul wants all the Israelites to hear the news of his son's victory but you know, reading this chapter, the bigger question is whether the Hebrews will hear, well, whether Saul himself will hear, hear the Lord and listen to him. Really, this whole chapter, the trumpet blows for Saul. Let King Saul hear. The Israelites do gather, gather for battle. The Philistines, though, however, they respond with a huge show of force. Verse 5, 30,000 chariots. I feel that I do, I, I ought to mention that the Hebrew word thousand at first was not the number thousand. So it's quite possible that this is 30 battalion units or something like that of chariots. I mean, years earlier, earlier, the great King Pharaoh only had 600 chariots. Perhaps the Philistines here have close to 1,000 chariots, 30 units of 30. They also have 6,000 horsemen, troops like the sand of the seashore. At any rate, it is a large amount. How do the Israelites react? They should have received some encouragement from Jonathan's defeat of the Philistine garrison, but this huge Philistine force terrifies them. 
It's so bad that the Israelites go in and hide. Verse 6, in caves and crevices and cliffs and cemeteries and cisterns. Just the way it's described in verse 6 in the Word of God captures how terrified the Israelites are. Any hole is a place to hide. Some of the Israelites, even verse 7, crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. They're completely running. But Saul is still at Gilgal, but everyone with him, verse 7, is trembling. So that's the scene. This is the situation. This is the test that Saul is given. What are you like when you are perhaps deathly afraid, terrified, when you feel threatened, when there's some very real dangers and concerns? What do you do when maybe even all those around you are only adding to the fear? Do you learn to take a stand? Like a stand in your faith, in your God. Do you beat back those fears? And does your grip on your God and His promises and His Word and also His will become stronger? Does it become clear to you? Yeah, those times when you're shaking a bit that we need to walk in the path the Lord has laid out. And we will trust that that is the path to go. We maybe don't have all the answers how things are going to be dealt with, how these enemies, these fears are going to be resolved, but the will of God, that is the road we need to take. Has it become clear to you that you need to walk with your God, not only when the sun is shining, but also when the storms come? Well, what will the new king King Saul do in this test of terror? That's our second point. Now you also need to know that Samuel previously had told Saul to wait at Gilgal. That's in chapter 10, verse 8. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So Saul is in Gilgal waiting for Samuel, but Saul gets rather impatient. Samuel had told him he would come on the seventh day, but Saul has had enough waiting. He decides he needs to offer the sacrifices. And just as soon as he finishes, lo and behold, Samuel shows up and immediately, right, that's the very first thing that Samuel confronts him with verse 11, and Samuel said, what have you done? Samuel, or Saul makes some excuses. Samuel will have none of it. Because of this, Samuel tells Saul, you have lost the kingdom. 
The Lord will not establish your line. You will not have a royal house in Israel. Now, I think this is the obvious question. Doesn't this seem, doesn't this punishment seem a bit extreme? I mean, David later on, he, he commits adultery and murder. All King Saul does is offer a sacrifice a little bit too early. This spells the end of his dynasty? Isn't God being rather harsh, unfair? So let's break this down for a little bit. I think, first of all, we should say, yes, you know, Saul's actions do seem reasonable. Sinful actions often seem reasonable at first. I mean, look at the scene. The army is deserting Saul. The enemy has gathered a huge force. Isn't it time to take action before it's only Saul and his son Jonathan? And Saul is offering a sacrifice? Certainly that's not like adultery or murder. Saul is doing something that at least resembles seeking the Lord's favor and honoring Him before this battle? Does it seem reasonable? Well, you can certainly tell yourself that it is reasonable, but it's not so simple. First of all, there was that clear word of Samuel, which here in this chapter is also identified as the word of the Lord. That very clearly the Lord has spoken through his prophet. Wait for me, Samuel had said. And we too receive the simple word of the Lord. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Keep your bodies pure as temples of the Holy Spirit. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive 70 times 7. Give of your first fruits to the Lord. Who are we fooling? We know the very clear command of God. The will of God is not something mysterious. As if we can take refuge in that. Secondly, through Saul's action here, yes, it's one action, but Saul's spirit, his attitude is revealed. Clearly, the will of God, what God wants, is not a critical thing for Saul. Saul has a sort of kind of sneaky, willing to cut corners kind of spirit, and you'll see that is evidenced as well in the next chapters. It seems like such a little thing. Saul even says that he is seeking the blessing of God. But Saul is clueless to the fact that you will never know the blessing of God. 
if you disobey him. If the word of God is not something you hold on to, you will never receive victory over anything. Third, Saul's disobedience also betrays his lack of faith. Saul lets his fears and his own wisdom get the better of him. Why do we disobey God? Is it just because we don't like the rules? Sometimes there's that too, but there's also more to it than that. Isn't our disobedience too, at the root of it, often a matter of unbelief? There's a situation, there's a fear, there's a desire. We think as well, like Saul, we need to take matters into our own hands instead of leaving them in the hands of the Lord. If you want to obey God, you have to decide to trust Him. And that is where Saul falls far short. There is an obedience that is more, let's say, a kind of Pharisee thing, where you just meticulously keep the rules for the sake of rules. There's also a kind of obedience that is maybe more like of a cultural thing. This is just the way you grew up. This is the way everyone else in the church, how they live. But then there's the obedience that says, I am trusting in God. No matter how big the enemies are, no matter how difficult the situation is, no matter what my finances might look like, the will of God will be my focus and my priority. I will wait upon my God and walk in His ways. Fourth, look at Saul's reaction to Samuel. Does Saul own his disobedience? No, instead he says, Samuel, you were late. Soldiers are leaving me in fear. I felt compelled and did what had to be done. He even, Saul even makes his disobedience sound like it's something courageous. Yes, David would sin and sin terribly. But at least David, and absolutely only by the grace of God, but David would be repentant, and David would pen the likes of Psalm 51 with intense sorrow and grief over his sin. But King Saul, it's just like Adam and Eve in the beginning, playing the blame game, minimizing his sin. Saul's big problem, and this continues in 1 Samuel, is that Saul has selective hearing. Selective obedience. Oh yes, Saul will serve God, but only when Saul himself thinks it's a good idea. 
Let us not fool ourselves. When you serve God, only when it sort of makes sense to you, you are not serving God at all. When you serve God only in the easy things, but then fail in the tough things, you are not serving God at all. When you serve God only when, yes, it's right in your eyes, you are living by what is right in your own eyes. What you need to see here is that Saul's sin does not just sort of lower his mark to 90%. It means an entire fail. Selective obedience to God. There is no such thing. That is no obedience at all. Saul fails the test. But there is one greater than Saul. He would face a more severe test and yet pass it. The situation, too, would be like this. Actually, even worse. It also would be a time of great darkness and fear. All those around him, every single one, would be filled with fear and desert him. One of them even fled naked. Saul was still in a relatively safe place. If you know your geography, you'll know that Gilgal is not right next door to Philistine territory. But there was one who would enter an even greater time of darkness where the devil would oppress him on all sides and even use one of his own disciples to betray him. He would face a test of making an even greater sacrifice the sacrifice of himself he would have to be faithful to his god even while being forsaken by his god he would have to trust in his god even while enduring the wrath of his god and he would not bend to the right or to the left, from the will of God, even when that will demanded a cross. His heart was always perfectly in tune with the heart of God. He would have a faith that waits, that waits upon the Lord, even while enduring hellish agony. Rejoice and worship with the wise men. Bring Him your gifts. For you know even more than they did how He is worthy. And He's also come so that we too would be like Him. That's our third point. 
This chapter ends with a picture of great helplessness. The Philistines have these marauding bands. They go wherever they want throughout Israel. We're told about to the cost even to sharpen things that there's hardly any iron at all in Israel. The end of this chapter is to paint a picture of helplessness and powerlessness. Yet, well, if we were to continue, we'd see that is not the end. Israel is in a picture of of dire straits here. Yet God does not leave His people in it. God does bring deliverance and victory to those whom you would never expect it. And of course, that is what we have in Jesus Christ in an even greater way. Just look at Him. We have a God who knows our hopelessness and helplessness. Yet, we have a God who has entered that. There is no room for Him in the inn or in the guest room. He is laid in a manger. He and His family have to run and hide in Egypt for a time. He grows up in the hick town of Nazareth. All His ministry, He has no place to lay His head. And finally, He dies that helpless death that we deserve on His cross. Yet through Him, the helpless are helped and the powerless receive power. Salvation has come to those who had every reason to be fearful and afraid. But let us define salvation. That is a very critical thing to do. And this chapter helps define it as well. What does salvation really look like? Is it just that the enemies around Israel, the Philistines or the Ammonites, would be dealt with? Clearly, salvation needs to be more than that. Salvation is when the will of God is established among the people of God. Where the king, it begins with the king, but the king leads all the people in that. The Lord Jesus Christ, that's why He has come. So that the will of God would be our delight. He has come so that we would not be like Saul. So that we would be those who wait upon God even when things are difficult. He has come to open up our eyes to the God who is worthy of our faith and obedience. How can we not trust in God? Saul comes up with his excuses here. But you and me, we have even less of an excuse. We have seen the God who has come to us in Jesus Christ. The God who has shown us such love and power and grace. 
we know the Emmanuel. Therefore, we must be those who follow, who wait upon God, who are near to God, the God who is near to us. The other day I saw something on the internet. You did not say who has the best theology. You did not say who, he who is the most successful. You said he who does the will of God. Matthew 7.21 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Our great King. How can our lives not be shaped by Him? As we look to Him, He was the one who was kingly in following the will of God. Those who look to Him. Faith and obedience must also be the mark and the shape of their lives. Or else, no matter what you have, how good things look, how religious even you might appear, the writing is on the wall. Amen.